This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. Something to remember as we get all full of ourselves, you know, writing these plans and thinking we have all the answers. Nobody has all the answers because sometimes the the situation is so big that you're going to have to be comfortable with a little bit of messy and things tidy up. Ian Weekly starting right now. Ian Weekly in the news. Santa Rosa, California. The death toll rose to 21 in the devastating wildfires in Northern California wine country and the surrounding communities, as officials feared that the even larger conflagration might be formed by merging fires. New evacuations were ordered Wednesday afternoon, October 11, 2017, amid a return of gusty winds and red flag conditions, stoking fires that are already among the worst in the state's history. In Napa County, a mandatory evacuation alert was issued by the city of Calistoga. Salona County authorities urged residents in Fairfield's East Ridge development to evacuate and encouraged residents of the Rancho Salona development to pack a bag of essentials and to be prepared to move. In Sonoma County, mandatory evacuations were in effect in Graysville from Highway 128 east of Red Rock Casino, and south of the 128 to Geysers Road up to Calpine. An advisory evacuation was also issued for most of Boys Hot Springs. The Salona County Sheriff's Office issued an evacuation advisory for the rural area west of Vectorville, telling residents the west side of Pleasant Valley Road between Highway 128 and Mixed Canyon Road to prepare a go bag. In a chilling warning early Wednesday, the head of Cal Fire said he anticipated that at least the two major fires ablaze in Napa Valley will merge into one single massive fire. Statistics. Butte County, Cherokee Fire, 8,400 acres, 45% contained. La Porta Fire, 3,700 acres, 15 contained. Lake County, Sulphur Fire, 2,500 acres, 40% contained. Mendocino County, Redwood Potter Fires, 29,500 acres, 5% contained. Napa County, Patrick Fire, 9,500 acres, 2% contained. Tubbs Fire, 28,000 acres, 0% contained. Napa County, Atlas Fire, 42,000 acres, 3% contained. Sonoma County, Adobe Fire, 8,200 acres, 0% contained. Norbum Fire, 1,800 acres, 0% contained. Nuns Fire, 7,600 acres, 2% contained. Pocket Fire, 1,800 acres, 0% contained. Yorba County, Cascadia Fire, 12,000 acres, 20% contained. Those are the Northern California fires right now. Latest fatalities are confirmed Wednesday morning. The Yuba County Sheriff's Department said a body was found in a burnt out home in Loma Rica, about 27 miles northeast of Yuba City. Cal Fire reports three more deaths in Mendocino County. The National Weather Service has issued a red flag warning beginning at 5 p.m. Wednesday, that's 10 11 17, to end running through 5 p.m. Thursday, 10 12 17, at the Bay Area with predictions of northeast winds up to 30 miles an hour with gusts of 40 miles an hour. 
Forecasters say that the next chance of showers in the Bay Area will not be arrived until October 20th at the earliest. Sonoma County officials said their list of missing was downgraded Wednesday afternoon. Out of 600 people, 315 have been found. 285 are still being sought. Sheriff Robert Gordino also said reports of immigration status as being checked is not true. Earlier, Gordino told reporters he expected the death toll in the county that is currently 11 to climb once search teams began looking through debris. There are 22 wildfires burning through Northern California and they have burned about 200,000 acres with little containment for most of these blazes. Emergencies happen, whether they're related to medical emergencies, threats of physical violence, weather related or other. One of the most difficult things during an emergency is to find help and quickly and efficiently communicate with all parties, regardless of whether you're an administrator, law enforcement, or the end user. With Titan HST, we help distort time by creating high-tech yet simple-to-use mobile-based applications that connect you with the people who can help you. At Titan HST, we believe in the power of people. Hey, I'm Mario Lopez. Earthquakes can strike anytime, so learning and practicing earthquake safety is a great idea for everyone. Join us for the great ShakeOut. Learn more at ShakeOut.org. ShakeOut Day is October 19th. Welcome to Ian Weekly. This is your host, Todd DeVoe. Today, we're interviewing Anna Cave, who was an emergency manager, and she's retired, and she moved to Houston, Texas, uh, just a few months prior to Hurricane Harvey hitting landfall. And this is her story. So I took the time to mostly take off my, my comments and questions and stuff. And you'll see how it goes here, the flow. And Anna talks about the volunteers that uh, that came to, to Harvey and the government and their actions or lack of actions in some case. What it was like to be with the shelters, uh, her kids actually, or one of her daughters at least, worked in the shelter. So if you have any questions, feel free to, to hit us up. Shoot me an email. Uh, click on the Ask Todd link on uh, Ian Weekly. Uh, and again, uh, enjoy the conversation here with Anna Cave. Also, at the end of the day, if you have the opportunity to, please go to your iTunes or Facebook uh, at our group or to Libsyn or wherever else you listen to this podcast. And please uh, make a comment and let us know how we're doing. Again, Anna Cave. In our neighborhood, as our streets began to flood, people were posting on our Facebook page, you know, slow down. You're sending waves up that are going to hit the houses because none of us were flooded, but the streets were flooded. And if cars went too fast, it was throwing water up and it became like a thing everywhere. People are like, stop barreling through this water. You're just sending it further into the houses. And it became quite a thing. I know it was pretty interesting. Well, one of the things that I, I think was pretty incredible was the way that newscasters address the storm. It was not just the weather, although the weather was a huge component. And certainly in, in you know, I'll use like, say, a 30 minute newscast, you would probably have 10 to 15 minutes of weather in there. But you also saw tremendous output of information about 
ways to be prepared. You know, be sure you have these supplies. Be sure you're prepared for power outages. This is going to be a long-term event. And it was just really incredible, the amount of information. And, and you know, they addressed the unpredictability of the storm because certainly anytime you have a hurricane coming in, you don't know where it's going to land, exactly where it's going to go, what it's going to be when it gets here. But they prepared us for the worst in a very clear way. Now, the other thing I will say is, um, you know, I look at the people who are, you know, the 20-somethings that are in my life, and many of them do not have TV per se. They subscribe to the different services that are out there. They're trying to minimize their cable bills and all that kind of thing. And so they had to, you know, either go online or do it differently, you know, and and I think that you would see a, a definite generational difference in how people acquired their information. But as far as you know, television, um, local radio, all those kinds of things, they were hitting it and they were hitting it hard. Um, also Facebook, Twitter, um, and especially from your local agencies, your Office of Emergency Management, your law, your fire. Um, out here, social media is a big deal for law and fire. So they all are pretty active and uh, we got a lot of good information that way. Right. Public messaging is going to gonna have to shift with the folks who are really now, you know, 20 and 30 something year olds are, are really starting to come into their own in their careers. And many of them are very disconnected from traditional forms of communication. And so we're going to have to continue to be creative. And I just had this discussion the other day with a couple of emergency managers. One of the issues is government moves so slow. By the time they decide, oh, we're going to embrace this form of communication, the world has moved on. And we've got mm-hmm. to figure out a way to bridge that gap faster. <laughs> that is, yeah. I mean, that's so true as far as that goes. It's like we do kind of step onto it really slow. I mean, Think about this. I mean, we're we're now just talking about uh, you know social media managers um, at the government level, specifically for Facebook and Twitter, um, and the, even those are just kind of now kind of old people things. The kids don't use the Facebook and Twitter anymore. You know. Correct. They're 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 Snapchatting. They're you know they're and and every year some new thing becomes all the rage. And I think that you know we just have to really figure out a way to be faster. I mean, think there are still jurisdictions in the United States who don't believe that they can engage in Facebook and Twitter because that's just way too out there. And, you know, that is speaking to an older generation now and and they're missing how to communicate with um, what is a growing sector of our population. I think it's a, a significant issue moving forward. Well, I think, um, you know, a lot of they have a lot of experience about flood areas, about what areas typically flood, what areas don't flood. And I think it's really important to understand the scope and size of the emergency. I mean, this involved um, ultimately 58 counties are included in the declaration right now. 58 counties. That's a huge number of jurisdictions. The problem is that I'm sure that in California, much of the attention came out of Houston. And and around here, we refer to it as Houston proper. I live outside of of Harris County and we are still, we consider ourselves Houstonians. And Houstonians would be, you know, this huge bubble of people. But when you talk about Houston proper under the direction of Mayor Turner, Mayor Turner made a lot of decisions that are where you get the impression there is conflict. And I will give you kind of... Um, I, I think it happened, I'm, I'm, if I put my days straight, 
probably on Saturday towards the middle part of the day where now we're starting to flood in Houston. I mean, this thing has come in um, and the the hurricane itself is still not here, but we're sitting in those what they call the dirty side of the storm. I mean, we are just getting pounded with rain. So now we're starting to see flooding and I'm watching and it was 24-7 news coverage at that point. And and obviously as as a retired emergency manager, that's what I do. I'm watching all the news coverage. I'm flipping between channels. But Governor Abbott did a press conference. And in that press conference that Governor Abbott did, he's talking about, I've reached out to, you know, and he's naming off mayors, you know, in, you know, the county where Rockport and Port Aransas were because they took the first direct hit. And he's, he's naming all these gov- these officials that he's talked to, the judge in this county, the judge in that county. I've talked to the police chief here. In other words, he's reached out. He then says, I've reached out to the city of Houston and Harris County numerous times and I'm waiting for a call back. Move forward about 15 minutes after that. And here comes Mayor Turner on TV. And I'm looking at a split screen. The left side of the screen is Mayor Turner at a press conference. The right side of the screen is a live shot from someone that's out in the field. The live shot in the field They've got people who are are being rescued with airboats, with whatever is out there. And Mayor Turner comes on and someone said, you know, Mayor Turner, um, Governor Abbott is implying that, you know, you you have not reached out for assistance. Are you going to be requesting assistance from the state of Texas? And he goes, Houston's fine. We have everything we need. We're doing a great job. And I'm sitting there staring at the TV. I I literally was on the edge of my seat with my mouth open, flabbergasted that I'm like, does he not see what we're seeing? Because we're looking at people being rescued out of houses. And then Mayor Turner, nope, we're fine. And it was right then that I began to realize that we had a problem in terms of how Houston was addressing this emergency and this belief that we've got it. We've got this covered. We don't need any help. And I think that this would be um, a familiar story. Many of us remember the city of Los Angeles in Northridge. Or, you know, I mean, we can go back in time and pick pick any big city in a, a an area-wide disaster and that feeling that, nope, nope, we've got this. We don't need any outside help because they're just not used to it. You didn't right. see that in small cities. In small cities, you saw people making decisions based on their own geography, their own people, and people typically listening to those directives based on experience and what's happened in the past and, and a completely different level of trust in many of the smaller counties with their officials versus the level of trust in the city of Houston. I wish I could. That's one of the things that, um, you know, I've been here nine months and and we've attended a lot of um, public forums. I fortunately live in a community that they give us a lot of attention because we're a big part of their tax base and we're retired and we have nothing else to do so we can make their life miserable if they don't show up. The judge, pretty much from what I understand, the judge is the highest authority. I would equate him in um, the California sense to say a board of supervisors type position because um, I do know that in our our county, when evacuations were ordered, um, questions were asked, and he said, I am the only person in this county who can authorize evacuations. And if there was any hesitation on anybody's part, I am issuing that evacuation order. So it became very clear that the judge in this case for us, it was Judge Bear. He is the leading authority in the county. He's the one who um, would have to issue curfew notices. He's the one who would have to issue all those kinds of things, obviously working in conjunction with all of the people who provide input. 
in our case, the levy districts, the, you know, people who control the river. He had Army Corps of Engineers staff. He had the sheriff's office. He had the fire department. He had all those people at his in the EOC. But the judge mm-hmm. is the one who was doing the, the communication, and he is the ultimate authority, the one who signed each and every one of those orders. Because I did go on. I was just curious. I wanted to read the orders and see what the detail said. And, and it's very clear that Judge Abair is, is the one. So I think it's important, um, just as I talk about my experience, I live in Fort Bend County. It's one of 58 counties that were impacted. Um, and one of the things to understand about Fort Bend County is it is the third fastest growing county in the United States right now. It is growing by leaps and bounds. And wow. it is a suburb of the Houston area. We're on the southwest side of Houston. So if you were to leave Houston, you would go through, you know, Missouri City, Stafford, Sugarland, and then you come to where we live in Richmond. And uh, it's a good sized county. It, it stretches all the way. It encompasses parts of the I-10 freeway all the way down to the 5969 freeway. It's a large county, very quickly growing, um, and uh, it is kind of exciting to be here. But I think that that makes a difference when you look at, you know, I worry a lot about those little counties that are not in a growth pattern and are very small and are trying to recover from this because we have, as a, as a larger county and one that is growing this fast, we have access to probably more resources than they do. I will address the um, the boat issue first. They literally did get on TV and say, um, if you own a boat, if you have a high truck or high vehicle that you can help with rescues, go out there and do it. And, and I mean, they just went. I have to tell you that, you know, I was, I grew up in the emergency management field as a strong proponent of the ICS system. Um, I spent a lot of time, you know, preaching that you must be affiliated, you have to do this. But then here in Texas, there is a strong value placed on independence and the ability to just jump in and help your neighbor. That, that, is, that is a value here and it remains a value. And I, that isn't true everywhere in the United States, but it is here. And so people literally, they back their, go to the backyard, back the boat out, get out to where they got enough water, they can float it and away they went. And Hundreds and hundreds of people were rescued when surprise flood water came in. I mean, places that have never flooded before flooded in this. You know, we had anywhere from 35 to 50 inches, depending on where you were, that fell in four days. It's an incredible amount of rain. And so once bayous and rivers all started overflowing, that water just had nowhere to go. It had absolutely nowhere to go. So the rescues, I think had we not had that in place, it would have started to go in the direction of Katrina. But what you saw is they're out in neighborhoods, these boats, and they would create their own kind of organization where you might get two or three guys with a boat, and then you get three to five guys who had a a pickup, and they line up. And so the guys with the boats would go in, they load up a family, Family, they bring them back, you know, and it was, you know, dogs and bags of clothes and whatever people were bringing and they'd bring them back and they'd hand them off to the, the guys who had the trucks and the guys who had the trucks would then drive them off to whatever shelter or um, to dry ground or, you know, wherever. And people were driving off and every single person that, that news talked to, and I watched hours and hours and hours of news because the whole Houston area was on lockdown. If you weren't being evacuated, you were on lockdown. Nobody went anywhere. And 
what was incredible was that people were like, oh, I'm so grateful. I, they, they're saving me and my family. This is just great. I mean, and people were so calm and so respectful and so grateful. There was none of the who's going to help me. There was, you know, I'm so glad to be out of that house. I was scared, um, all that kind of thing. So they really did put out just a general on TV. If, if you have a boat, if, and, and this was said by Mayor Turner not two hours after he sat on TV and said, oh, we're just fine. And then he goes and he tells everybody who has a boat or a high truck to get out there and start rescuing people. And that's just, you know, how it, it all happened. And, you know, unfortunately, the opening of shelters was kind of behind. Initially, it was just, a, you know, George R. Brown Convention Center was the only shelter that I heard of. Um, and like even here in Fort Bend County, we only had one church open as a shelter for those areas that always flood for us whenever the river rises even a little bit. So, you know, it, they don't open shelters at the same rate that sometimes we see happen. But people seemed to be taken care of, and it was very organic. So that was pretty incredible for me to watch. And I have to tell you, it, it left a lasting impact on my my view of of the role of volunteers. And mm-hmm. in those early phases of, of disaster, when you are in the thick of recovery, um, and, and what was cool is you might see a police officer in the mix with these folks. Like, he, he's, he's just out there helping to push the boat or help the people get out of the boat and walk them to somebody's truck. I mean, they they were, because there's not enough of them. I think that understanding on their part, they needed what these folks brought to the table. They didn't have enough. Right. And so um, I think that, that whereas, um, you know, when it's not a, a, a true crisis like this, it's easy to go, oh, no, we have to be organized. You have to go check in there. You have to, if they would have stopped to try to organize this, people would have died. A friend of mine is a volunteer and um, he's a volunteer. He's still in Harris County, but not Houston proper per se. And uh, as a volunteer firefighter, their crew was assigned to get a boat ready and to go out and do rescues. And he provided what I thought was some interesting feedback in terms of the frustration they had. You know, and you have to remember they had, you know, four firefighters with, you know, a pickup and a boat. It's driving rain. I mean, driving rain out there. Things are starting to flood. And they're getting, they basically were handed a sheet and says, here are the calls that are pending that, have, that people who've called and said they need to be rescued. Go start down the list. Just go. And so they head out. And he said here, you know, sometimes because a street would be flooded and then you'd hit a dry area. So they'd have to pick the boat up carry it over, get back in on the other side where it's flooded again, you know, keep going. And so rescues took a long time for these, these, you know, this little group of uh, guys that were working together. And he said they would, you know, maybe spend a half an hour getting to a house and the house is empty because the people already got rescued by somebody else. And so he said, it's not that I don't want them rescued. He said, how do we get this coordinated and better coordinated so that we are not wasting the resources? He said, because maybe I could have gone to another house on the list that they hadn't gotten to and get those people out. So it was an interesting perspective to talk to him about, you know, the, the citizen rescues. While they were very glad that those were happening, he also said that, you know, or he said sometimes people would put it out on Facebook and so a friend in a high truck came, picked them up, took them away, and, and they just never canceled the order. So it was an right. interesting dilemma as that went on. And, and, you know, like I said, it's important to remember, it was driving rain <laughs> with, you know, 40-mile-an-hour winds the whole time all this is going on. So right. um, it, it's pretty crazy that they had all that. Donations management. Well, what's interesting is 
No different. I, I don't know that I've ever seen a big city mayor that doesn't come on and say something ridiculous like, you know, send your clothes, send you this, send you that. Um, nobody needed clothes. And of course, the donations management piece, I will say that what has been awesome is it still continues to be covered here. Mm-hmm. And very quickly, the news channels were able to redirect that and say, please do not send your clothes. These are the items that we are in need of. And they would throw it up there. And it very quickly went from you know, the basics like water, you know, the real basic initial supplies all the way to um, and socks and underwear, huge for the socks and underwear, baby items, always huge adult diapers. Those are things very quickly. I would say day three or four, it kicked into a process where it was now seeking cleaning supplies, cleanup supplies. It shifted very quickly. And even today, you still see people looking for cleanup supplies and the emergence of a VOAD. For example, the church that I belong to, they've stood up a donation center. They went out in the midst of the hurricane, actually, rented a a warehouse space that was empty. And we have been running donations for a whole bunch of private nonprofits here in Fort Bend County. And they did a 21-day rental. And so we are already halfway through with that. And we'll be winding down operations next week. But it's been great because as supplies came in, they were shifting them out to either churches or other organizations like Attack Poverty, Helping Hands, with supplies that they needed to serve their clientele. Get it out there. We've taken it as far as Beaumont, and we took um, some uh, some all the way down to Rockport. So moving those supplies, oh. not just within our own county, meet your own county's needs first, but then if stuff is standing, move it. Just get it out. Right. And every day they filled the warehouse and emptied the warehouse. In other words, bring it in, ship it out. And what they did for clothes is they found an organization who would buy it by the pound. Found an organization because what happened by day, literally it stopped raining on that Tuesday. And by Wednesday, there was no one who was willing to take any clothes. No one could manage it. It just can't be managed. So, you know, I think that really what we as emergency managers can do, because we always want to push cash and cash is still king, but come up with a short list. And it's a pretty short list I could give you based on my daughter's experience working in a shelter and what continues to be in demand today, a very short list of items that people can donate. And that's the message we need to start promoting along with our 72-hour kit. Every area that gets hit by disaster is going to need baby items, diapers, formula, especially older kid diapers. Believe it or not, they had a glut of newborn diapers They needed them for that, you know, toddler age. (laughs) Very specifically, they were able to come up with that. Um, Adult diapers, socks and underwear of all sizes. So I I think that if we can begin to create a standard message and redirect that attention, we as a country can do a better job. That was a much bigger deal outside of the box here, um, along with, you know, the shoes that Melania was wearing. Nobody nobody cared what shoes she showed up in here. We were just glad um, that we were getting the attention we needed to have from the president. We needed to have people who were going to go back and advocate for the state. And it was interesting because I would see things come across like my Facebook feed and I'm like, okay, no one here cares. No one, no one here cares. And, you know, the thing with Joel Osteen, there were so many churches that stood up and jumped in to help and continue to work and are working to this day that, you know what, if that church doesn't stand up, you know, nobody cares. Nobody cares. You know, if you go out here to, you know, pick any of the 57 other counties, 
they're not going to church there. They're going to church somewhere in their local county. What's their local church doing? Are they helping to, you know, assist with the, the relief effort? And because of the VOED co-ed situation and how it works out here, that is how needs are being met is at those local areas, not with those big mega church kind of operations. Um, and there are a couple of exceptions to that. There are a couple of churches that really have stepped outside the box. Houston Second Baptist, that's one. Uh, but they're a church that already had six locations throughout Houston. So them stepping up as a church put a lot of hands and feet out in the community in lots of places because they're it's a mega church. It's a huge church out here. So they stepped up very successfully. And out here, if Joel Osteen doesn't want to play, okay. I mean, yeah. <laughs> You know, I, I mean, it, just don't don't run for office against against Mattress Mac because he'll win every time. I mean, it, that man's a hero out here. Right. <laughs> you know what? It's good for me because what I see is they are grabbing for negative news. And here, I mean, and I watch probably three different local news channels a day. And I'm not seeing negative news. I'm seeing um, either stories of help. I'm seeing... Um, Interviews with, you know, FEMA people with, you know, um, identifying needs at the George R. Brown and NRG Center in terms of volunteers. I'm seeing all kinds of things. The worst press that I'm seeing out here is for the American Red Cross taking a beating, taking a beating and uh, far more conversation with that. And I have, um, you know, a pretty strong perspective on why that is. But, you know, I mean, I don't know that this show wants to get political. So, (laughs) you know, well, and I think that really the the key is when you empower people to help people and then people continue to do that in all arenas in terms of the response and you um, reject that as not useful, all of a sudden it's a confusing message. And that message is what has muddied the water here. Um, You know, you call people to bring their boats and their pickups and rescue people but then someone brings food to people who are hungry because the larger system can't support feeding them. Um, and you tell them, oh, we can't do that here because we have rules. Well, now, now, you have, now, now you have a sticky area. So I think that, you know, all that has to be kind of weighed into that. And, and it's a piece of it. So, uh, you know, Texas right. independence, like I said, we're all about taking care of each other out here. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think, um, you know, the, the Texas mindset here is has been interesting. And obviously, I was a, a, a big student of Katrina, Rita, Ike, all of those hurricanes that hit kind of in that time frame and watching how people reacted and, and all of the, the lessons to be learned there. And I think that one of the, the values that I see here is people don't wait for government to get it done. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is a huge piece of what makes the mindset different. And if you are in a region where people become very dependent on the government to act, then you are going to run into that conflict. Government is small here. And like I said, if you get outside Houston proper, Houston proper is different, but you go out to other areas, government itself is very small. You can go into a city of 50, 60,000 people and city hall is a little tiny building. And then you'll have your law, your fire, but you have a little tiny building for city hall. They, they just don't um, build big government out here. And because of that, they rely on volunteer organizations to do much of the running 
for all of your services that get provided. So what happens is in an event like this hurricane, all of those things, they just, they, they kick into gear. They do it. They've done it before whatever the disaster might happen to be, and they just get busy doing it. And when you're done in your area, you go to your neighbor's area and say, hey, how are you guys doing? Do you need help? And, and they just jump in and they do it. In Florida, it was interesting watching them stand up and how evacuation orders got issued and all those kinds of things. And, and I actually did see someone on one of the, the interviews that I was watching say, we have strong counties and we leave it up to the counties to make those decisions. Well, I think that that is where some of this conflict is going to come in. If you have strong counties who are used to running things, that can create some conflict. And as a group comes in trying to help, if you have a, a, a county who wants strong control, there's going to be conflict. Here, they're a little comfortable. They're a little more comfortable with messy and that or that organic, you know, boots on the ground. Hey, you're here to help those people. Awesome. That being said, here in Texas, they've already filed suit against people who were price gouging. They've, they've already got, I don't know, they gave a number the other day. Twenty some cases have already been filed for price gouging. Hotels, gas stations, whatever. They're having none of it. They're actively putting the number out. You know, do you see someone price gouging? Let us know. We won't, you know, we want your information so we can go after them. It's pretty intense. I, I was very impressed how quickly that stood up. I I, uh, I saw a sign uh, or a picture, I mean, and this guy had a sign. He was selling a case of water for $20. And then this other dude was across the way from him a little bit, and he had a water that said free. <laughs> I thought that was, yeah. I thought that was telling <laughs> I thought that was telling. I thought, see, things like that are funny. And actually, one of the one of the people that they have already filed suit against was a gas station who was charging, like, let's say that they sell a bottle of water for a dollar fifty because they could. They charge like if it's a case of twenty four, they did twenty four times a dollar fifty and tried to say that that was the price of a case of water that normally is two ninety nine. And uh, anyway, the attorney general is coming up after them. And do you know how that got reported? Things like Nextdoor, Facebook, Twitter. People are like, don't go to this gas station at this corner. These guys are crooks, you know, and they're taking pictures. They're they're not messing around. And that's where social media can make a huge difference in putting a clamp on that kind of stuff. Disaster is humbling. And, you know, that was kind of what, you know, for people who have reached out and asked, you know, what would be the one lesson is that, um, there's and because we've been a long time in in California, for example, and there are many other areas that it's been a long time since a real disaster, not the little disaster, the big disaster, and and those mm-hmm. kinds of things are very humbling for those involved. And I think that um, you know that that's something to remember as we get all full of ourselves, you know, writing these plans and thinking we have all the answers. Nobody has all the answers because sometimes. The, the situation is so big that you're going to have to be comfortable with a little bit of messy and things tidy up. I mean, I'm seeing all that, all the organizations helping rid of BOAD and, you know, everything is starting to tidy up now that we're past the immediate danger. But it was humbling for us individually as a family and the fear that we could be flooded. And it, it changes people. My intention would be that we use it for good as we move forward. So it was a pleasure to talk to you and hopefully put out some ideas that people might be um, able to incorporate into whatever they're doing. As always, Anna, I I always love learning from you. You were uh, one of the best. All right. Thanks, Todd.
Hi, this is Todd DeVoe from EM Weekly. If your company is in the emergency management and response space, EM Weekly is a place for you to advertise. Each week, we bring in experts in emergency management, response, and leadership from around the world, and they're here to share their best practices. Our listeners are eager to learn about new products and ideas, so this is the space for you. For more information, please contact Brian at brian at emweekly.com.